0: Hello and welcome to the Reorient podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander and I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. So, welcome to the Reorient podcast and today I am absolutely delighted to have the best-selling author Dori Jones Yang to join us and talk about her incredible life experiences and her wonderful books and everything else in a free-flowing conversation. So, Dory, welcome to the Reorient podcast.
1: Well, thanks. I'm delighted to be here.
0: I uh, want to say sort of out the outset that I read your most recent publication, which is called When the Red Gates Opened, a memoir of China's reawakening And it's a memoir that recounts your experience as uh, the Business Week correspondent in Asia, based in Hong Kong primarily, in the 80s and 90s. And you tether that to your life story of how you came to China and your experiences in China and how you fell in love with a Chinese man. And I found it absolutely riveting, hard to put down because um, the backdrop is so interesting and your personal story is so interesting. And I would just say at the outset, this book is for everyone. It's just a wonderful read. So that's what I would just want to put that out there for for you and everyone else to know.
1: Well, thanks. That makes me feel great. I really (laughs) like doing that kind of thing. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's a great story. And I I would just say also the outset, I identified with a lot of it, having grown up and and we'll get, you know, I want to obviously lay the story in terms of your story, but there was a lot of parallels I felt with my own life. I could really relate to it. And as someone who came from a a really, I guess, like very culturally American background myself, and then sort of fell in love with China and this ended up defining my life in many ways, I, I found a lot of parallels. But I think for even people who don't necessarily uh, have experience in China, uh, much less fall in love with the Chinese. <laughs> I think they'll, there's a lot they can find interesting in your book. So, so Dory, I'd like just in the beginning just to ask you. Uh, you don't necessarily have to go through your CV or your whole story, but what are the key aspects in your background uh, that sort of brought you uh, to become a um, someone? I guess a sort of a sinologist or someone who has a very close association and spent a lot of time. looking at and understanding China.
1: Well, you're right that we we have that in common, that culturally American is a very nice way to put it. I was talking to one interviewer recently who used the word white bread, which (laughs) is also (laughs) true. I grew up in Ohio in an industrial city in Northeast Ohio. And in the 50s and 60s, there were uh, almost no Asians in my city. And certainly none uh, that I knew in my schools when I was growing up. And so I had no no background, no exposure to Chinese people or to China. And it it seems very unlikely that I would end up having the career that I did. So Mm -hmm. what happened? I really loved foreign languages. When I got to high school... I just, I was, I was kind of a language geek. I have to admit, I just, I am
0: all, too. But go ahead, please.
1: All languages. Yeah. I started with with Latin and French, and just went on from there. And I've studied a little bit of a lot of languages. Can I ask
0: you just interrupt for a second? Did you do, a, by any chance, a study abroad in France or anywhere else?
1: Not a study abroad, but I did a summer abroad with the Experiment in International Living, and mm-hmm. uh, they had me live with a family in France. And it was just magical for me to be in a household of people who did not speak English. One of them spoke English, but three of them did not speak any English, mm. and to be able to communicate with them directly. And I loved that feeling, and I just wanted more of it. And mm. I also had a facility for languages. It was not that hard for me to learn, and I, I enjoyed it. So I loved studying languages. But I started off mostly focused on journalism. But when I was in high in college, I worked for newspapers. My the two summer, well, four summers of college, I worked uh, as a newspaper intern, and I also worked on the daily student newspaper at Princeton when I was in college. And then, um, and I mostly studied French and German and history. But I wanted to live overseas. And I want, I was very interested in studying another language. So I applied for a fellowship from something called Princeton in Asia. Mm-hmm. And they send students or recent graduates to various parts of Asia to work usually. And so I got a fellowship for two years to spend teaching English and studying Chinese, studying Mandarin Chinese in Singapore in 1976. And at that time, it was not possible for Americans to go to mainland China to study. Unless, exactly,
0: you could do ping pong diplomacy, but there weren't any sort of official uh, exchange programs or other types of programs in China
1: at that time. Exactly. And those Mm -hmm. who were, the Americans who were very serious about studying Chinese mostly went to Taiwan. But Mm -hmm. I had this opportunity to go to Singapore and 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 part of it was free instruction in Chinese for two years. And as it happens, the way the program was structured, I had four hours a day, five days a week for two years of Mandarin instruction. And I didn't realize it, but that's what it takes. I mean, just really immersion or just massive doses of language study. And um, although Singapore was not an entirely Mandarin speaking place, there certainly were a lot of Mandarin speakers there. And I was able to to find people to speak with. And I really loved it. It was just deliciously difficult. <laughs> and then I realized toward the end of it that I knew a lot about the Chinese language. And I really didn't know very much about China. And it, it hadn't been possible to go to China. It was very hard for There were very few Americans who did go to China in those days. There were some, but not many. And so I came back to the U.S. and decided I wanted to study about China, which is where our lives intersect in a way, although not at the same time, because I decided to study international relations at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And I thought that was a more professional degree than to just, I didn't want an academic type degree like East Asian Mm -hmm. Studies. So I focused on China and East Asia and also on international economics and um, American foreign policy. And those three turned out to be the perfect background academically for the kind of job that I got. So when I finished, I was very, very lucky. And this this is how I start off the book, actually, because while I was in graduate school, the US and China reestablished diplomatic relations. A momentous uh,
0: period. Yes, Deng,
1: Deng Xiaoping came to the U.S., came to Washington. I was I was in grad school in Washington and I got to see him from a distance. But I did get to see him. And it was it was a very it was a time full of hope and euphoria and excitement. And I was there on the cutting edge. And also I had a part time job with the U.S. China Business Council and they had a magazine called the the China Business Review. So I was combining my interest in journalism with an interest in China. And it was one of the only, really the only magazine at that point that seriously tried to explain the Chinese economy and the Chinese trade opportunities to... Because
0: there couldn't have been much business going on between US and China. And so you, you were sort of, this was at the very beginning of restoration of relationships and you were there from the beginning.
1: Exactly. So during the mm-hmm. 70s, after Kissinger's visit in 72, there had been a little bit of trade and business interaction between the U.S. and China. But really, when Carter and Dung established diplomatic relations, that just flung wide the red gates, as I said, you know, flung open the doors for U.S. business. And many, many companies really, really wanted to get into China. They had no idea what they were doing But they really, really, really wanted to get into China, and I was already training a little bit to by talking to them and getting to know some of them. I even uh, for that job went around, accompanied a Chinese business delegation around the U.S., and I Mm -hmm. also accompanied a U.S. business delegation to China. And I got to I got to see both sides of it. Uh, That sorry, um,
0: sorry. This is what year you're referring to?
1: This would have been um, nineteen. 79.
0: Okay. And you may know uh there's a wonderful book by uh Ian Johnson uh called My First Trip to China. And he uh, in the book there it's a series of recollections from all kinds of uh foreign uh scholars uh who went to China, including as you know Perry Link from Princeton. And um, it's a compilation of really interesting experiences. So I'm just curious. I'd like to ask people. So was that your first trip to China? And can you give us just a bit of a flavor of, of what you encountered then?
1: Well, I had two trips to China when I was in graduate school, and one trip was organized by my graduate school, and, and that was in the um, that was in the summer of let's see, seventy eight. And uh, it was a group of grad students like me and uh, with someone uh, from the university uh, traveling with us. And then my second trip was with these businessmen, which was kind of an eye opener to because when they got drunk, they got a little bit amorous and <laughs> I had to keep them at bay. <laughs> that was not something I learned in graduate school.
0: Yeah, you don't learn that in school, that's no. for sure. No, I didn't. but
1: I both of those times, and and you know from reading that book as well, that people dressed in very, very drab clothes. In the summer, they would wear a white shirt over dark pants, and in the winter, they would wear some kind of a gray or blue or or black jacket over dark pants. They There was no color, except for children, there was no color in their clothing, And everybody had an iron rice bowl, they had a job for life. uh, But that also meant that they didn't have to work very hard. Mm. And it was a very, the other thing that's really important, it was a very, very poor country. And I didn't come back saying, Oh, it's impoverished. But really looking back, 80 or 90% of the people lived in poverty, 80% lived in the countryside. The cities were, went dark at night. They just turned off the lights. <laughs> the only kind of vegetable you could get in in Beijing in the winter was cabbage, and they would pile up the cabbages on the street. And um, they also used a lot of charcoal fires for cooking in Beijing. Right, which... So the air was terrible in a very different way than it became later. It wasn't an industrial pollution. It was charcoal pollution in the winter.
0: Just to underscore that point, in your book, I think you highlight that, I don't know if it's on your first trip, but in your early times covering China, that the workers and factories made about 50 yuan per month or 10 US dollars. And China had a per capita GDP of $200. So it really does highlight how poor China was in those days. Although workers as a socialist communist country there were a lot of government benefits and, and support in addition to your salary that you got as a, as a worker in a, in a state-owned enterprise.
1: Right. And I think even the $200 was in today's dollars. <laughs> so it was less in, those, in the dollars of that time. Mm. People did get some benefits, of course, especially if they worked for either the government or a state-owned uh, enterprise. But 80% of the people were on the farm. They didn't work for any, they they worked for the state. They weren't allowed to choose what they wanted to plant. They weren't allowed to sell vegetables in the market because that was being capitalist or being a capitalist rotor. There was no, there were no private markets. Everything was sold in, that was sold in stores was behind glass or behind the counter. And if you wanted to buy something, You had to go up and say it in Chinese, and there were quite a few words I didn't know in Chinese, and if you could point to it, that would be okay. But for women of a certain age, (laughs) in their 20s, (laughs) there are some things I didn't know how to say, let me say.
0: (laughs) Well, I had uh, also an experience. I first went to China in 1991 as an exchange student, and in Beijing, even, there were state-owned stores. And I remember going in, and the sales ladies uh, behind the counter were actually sleeping. So you didn't just have to go up to the counter; you actually had to wake them up if you wanted to buy something. So that gives you a real sense for you know what China was like in that uh, sort of pre-economic reform era. So there were still some vestiges left, you know, even in the uh, 80s and 90s.
1: I remember in the 80s there were. Um There were no modern hotels. There were no Western-built hotels, and then Mm -hmm. there were a few. Initially, there were none in nineteen eighty, but then a few were built. And in some cases, the Chinese government insisted that very quickly they be turned over to Chinese management. And when they did, they went downhill. the The rugs got weren't washed or cleaned or vacuumed, and things fell apart. And a lot of the kind of wisdom at the time of the Americans who were there was, these Chinese have been on an iron rice bowl all this time, and they have no incentive to work hard. There is no way China will ever catch up to Hong Kong or Taiwan, let alone Korea or Japan or the US. It seemed absolutely impossible.
0: Yeah. And that's a theme I think you, you highlight in your book is a lot of people, whether they were uh, academics or, let's say, business managers who interacting with China or politicians, felt that China really would struggle to actually catch up into reform. And I'm wondering, just again, on your personal journey, um you, you talk about this experience of seeing Deng Xiaoping, I believe, at the Kennedy Center, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. It's, a, it's a huge event. Deng Xiaoping's visiting uh, the U.S. Um, I believe this is, must be after the normalization of relations, so soon after with President Jimmy Carter. So you're there at this momentous occasion, a lot of enthusiasm about this brand-new relationship and the potential on the other hand, you go to China and you're seeing the poverty, you're seeing the uh, inefficiencies and almost the illog- illogical manifestations of of sort of the communist system. Which of those two or both actually sort of said, said to you like, hey, this is so exciting. I want to be part of China and the China story and, and eventually cover China as a journalist.
1: Well, what was exciting to me, and it's, it's kind of hard to remember exactly how much of this I knew at the time because we all have hindsight. But it, what, what excited me was that I could see even then that China was changing direction. Everything mm. we learned about Deng was that he wanted to introduce reforms. He, he, he called it economic reform and opening up, and that he was committed to this. And that meant actually allowing private enterprise which used to be called capitalism <laughs> is called capitalism he but he wasn't going to call it that but he was allowing chinese individuals to become capitalists. and that i was in china really for the whole of the 80s thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast to access the entire podcast and more high quality analysis on asia please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.